Welcome to Positive Talk Radio. Our goal is simple, to explore evolving ideas one conversation at a time. So stay with us as right now we present. Today we get one of my favorite topics by one of my favorite people that I just met not too long ago. She's a wonderful person, but before <laughs> before we go there, Mitch, how are you today, sir? It's Wednesday, you know. <laughs> it is. We're halfway through the week. I'm doing great, Kevin. How about you guys? I'm doing awesome. Joanne, how about your sale? Absolutely wonderful. Happy to be here. Well, we are happy to have you here because we've got a lot to talk about during this hour. And I hope everybody stays with us. We're going to talk about, first of all, I um, I want to make sure everybody knows that you can get her book, which is called Soulful Work 2.0. Um, and you can get that through um, Amazon and other major sellers by the way i don't have your website is there a website that uh that it's we a minute have? away from coming live uh, i had a, a large website for a long time and uh, a company in australia just the hosting company disappeared with the website so so we're in construction but it will be it will be done soon in the meantime i could be found on linkedin oh very good so and is it just joanne uh, uh t joanne, jo joanne trinner Joanne, T-R-I-N-E-R. Correct. Oh, very, very good. Well, if somebody wants to contact you, they can do that, or they can go to Amazon and pick up Soulful Work 2.0. Um, how long has the book been out now? Uh, August 1, 2023, so it's uh, quite new. Oh, very nice. And I know that you're in the middle of what they call a public relations tour. Um, <laughs> yes, comes with a boatload of work, uh, but all fun, all good problems to have. Yes, I know. Are you also doing uh, um, some book signings that we need people to be aware of? Uh, there will be one coming up. I haven't been told the location yet. It's somewhere in the Columbus, Ohio area. Oh, very good. So you're in Ohio. I am. Columbus, Ohio, yeah. uh, actually close to Ohio State University. Oh, they're the Buckeyes. Very nice. Right. Very nice. <laughs> we, You know, um, Mitch, I, I'm a lot older than you, so I've been a Seahawk fan a lot older than you. Um, do you know who uh, Kurt Warner, the running back, was a Buckeye? I believe. <laughs> uh oh, Mitch, as will happen sometimes, Mitch got frozen. So we will, we will carry on and he will be back here shortly, I'm sure. <laughs> so, uh, Joanne, tell us about the book. What, what made you write it and how long has it been in process? Thank you for asking. It's been in process for a lifetime, and it, it happens quite organically. Uh, uh, as a young woman, uh, I was an A student in a Catholic school and prompted by my teachers to enter a convent. So along with 30 other women, I did. And for the term of six years, I was there. After six years, you're free to leave if you wish. And many of us did at the time. I was one of them that did. And so I went from this mission-driven culture to a money-driven culture. And it was culture shock. I just had to stand back and, and ask, is this how it is? Is, is this chaotic, uh, cutthroat, uh, competitive world really making sense for anybody? Are we having fun here? It, it was rather, um, it, it just left an impression on me that stayed. And then, of course, after about three or four years, I went into the educational arena. And, and there, 
Um, I had many leadership roles, but my last one was a principal in a community, um, a, a large educational community. So I was there for 14 years and I had already done my dissertation on this topic. So I was looking through this second set of lenses at everything I saw, kids working hard, teachers working very hard, speech and hearing therapists, psychologists, the, you know, the, the people who were uh, cleaning the building or serving food, and then parents coming in from all corners of the working world in the community of Columbus, from the hospital, some were nurses, their companies, and they would all tell me about their day. And I was just a sponge soaking up their experiences and looking at this whole work culture and saying, this is very duty driven, but maybe not so love driven. You know, where, where's the love element in the work that we're doing? The nurses would say, I never got into it for this, not for paperwork. I got in it for the people work. And it's, it shifted from much of what, you know, I thought when I was going into nursing. And, you know, some of the dads were firefighters, police officers, every walk of life, really. This was a, a lifelong study of um, this world of work where people are just not enjoying themselves. Their quality of life was curiously low. And it was especially the teachers that I was fascinated with who taught me everything I know, really. I asked, why, did, why do we hire the brightest and the best? And they work so hard. And yet the quality of their lives is curiously low. What, what's missing? So, you know, I, I learned from that, that um, we have to look more at our own callings and the way we do things and give it a radical rethink. We all get up in the morning, we all get dressed, we all go to work. <laughs> and many now are even dropping out because they've seen generations lay their lives down at the feet of an employer only to come away disenchanted, unhappy, and maybe all not that much rewarded. So, you know, we think, thinking about the human race, we are greatly gifted. We're, I think that human resources are the greatest resource on planet Earth. We're the thinking, the humans who can self-reflect and, and we have dominion over the earth, but some days it feels like the earth has dominion <laughs> over us. We That's are so true. We're the slave people who are, you know, doing all of this hard work, but not deriving the inner joy. So in my research, in my, especially in my dissertation, I studied quality of life in the workplace around the world. Uh, William Uchi in Japan was developing the quality circles and saying people closest to the job know most about the job. And that was very interesting. You know, maybe autocratic governance was not the best thing for the time. And we soon learned that lesson. You know, the research goes deep and the dissertation is, has been on the shelf for many, many years. But bottom line, um, we just went through the great resignation, uh, the great reshuffle, the quiet quit. And we saw uh, all of these hardworking people copy, just opting out because it was just too much, too intense, and the love was lost. So today, 85% of people worldwide, and this is reported by Gallup polls, 85% of people worldwide are unhappy in their jobs. I can believe that. I can believe that. First of all, Mitch, welcome back. Hi, Mitch. 
Thank you. Hey, I just apparently I'm just going to pop in and out. Yeah, don't mind me. I didn't no clue what's going on right now. So well, it's just uh, it's going smooth right now. Sorry about that, Johan. That, 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 that's that's okay. We'll try. We'll try and get your thoughts in in between freezing. <laughs> yeah, it happens. So sorry. That's, that's that's quite all right. That's that's modern technology, and uh, you know. But uh, first of all, I wanted to ask you, um, how old were you when you went into the convent? I was a mere seventeen years old when I began my adult life. Did yeah. that did that frighten you that that suddenly you're going to go into a a structured environment like a convent like that? Well, you know, uh, I came from a Catholic family where I had a cousin who was a nun and a great aunt who was a nun, so oh, it's not. Uh, unfamiliar you know an unlikely conclusion and i was an a student so that you know the nuns would always prompt the a students to come aboard because they'd love to have us in the community of course but they were very excellent teachers uh you, if you didn't know how to read in second grade i mean there was i don't think anybody there was anybody who couldn't read by second grade uh, and they were loving and taught us more than reading, writing, and arithmetic, how to keep house, how to water the plants. You know, each one of us had a little, it was a little community where each one of us had a little job. And so, you know, you knew how to use a broom, you knew how to use the uh, electric, uh, what are these machines that polish, <laughs> polish the floors. <laughs> we did all kinds of things. The classroom was a little community where you you got along with people. You learned how to get get along with people, and not just the uh, you know the the bookwork. So anyway, they were very loving, and because of my family background, I end up in a community, and it was a beautiful thing, really. Uh, and that's where I got my spiritual grounding. Yeah, well, you know, and it, it makes it makes total sense um, that 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 would happen for you. Now, you know, I know a little bit about our friend Mitch here, and he. I really admire him because he is not going down the road of corporate America. He's decided that, well, Mitch, you tell us, what have you decided to do rather than to um, go get a nine to fiver and, and to work uh, 60 hours a week and that kind of stuff? Yeah, well, I think that um, a long time now of working in the corporate America world, um, you know, the problems that you've mentioned joanna are are huge um and depending on who you work for some are better some are worse um and yeah as a learning smith um, is fading in and out yeah this this is one of those things it's like come on you can do it you can do it come on <laughs> something important to say you can do it i know you can do it well apparently not <laughs> He'll be back, and and we'll have him finish that thought when he comes back. But and so you spent six years as as a nun. Yes, and uh, the Vatican II was going on at the time, so major changes in the church. Lots of of nuns left at that time, uh, knowing that we could go on and do our missions of importance. You know, just put on our running shoes and go out into the world and do that. So I I was one of those that did, and you know, even to this day, all of us zoom with each other. It was through COVID that we started to uh, reconnect after many, many decades. And they're all, they've all done wonderful things with their lives. So I salute them. But um, yeah, the transition was very traumatic uh, because in a community, we have grand silence, prayerful. I mean, people are truly there for the right reason. 
they are givers, nurturers, you know, they are, and, and they're deriving immense joy as I did, immense joy from serving and giving. Uh, so pretty much uh, a tree was bent here, you know, I was groomed in that way of thinking and that way of life. And it was very rewarding. And to this day, I, I subscribe to the idea that we're happiest when we're not thinking about ourselves and worried about ourselves, but we're focused outward on the needs of other people. It's right. uh, There are books written about that. <laughs> um, I, I, I agree completely. By the way, um, Mitch, I don't know about you, but I occasionally would find myself in the principal's office. This doesn't look like any principal that I ever went to ever in my entire schooling life. How about you? <laughs> you know, I, I didn't go, I didn't go into the principal's office very often. I think I got, I got detention one time in my whole childhood and it was an elementary school and that was about it. So I didn't have a lot, unfortunately, and I'm being honest. I, yeah, I did not have a lot of experience um, <laughs> dealing with that, but I mean, I've heard stories and I had friends that spent a lot of time there. <laughs> well, we, we don't bite. And I never, in 14 years, I never had a bad kid. We had <laughs> stakes made and we had lots of learning experiences we had a school where people actually wanted to come in and kids would come in when they were sick <laughs> and would pretend they're not sick because they wanted to be there. They wanted to be part of the, the happenings of each day. And uh, I was very proud of, of that staff and very proud of that experience. And those kids, those teachers, the whole staff taught me a great deal and I, I forever will be indebted to them. And, you know, of course, it's because I had the dissertation work behind me that I was able to see into, not just see surface, but see into, into each person. One of the things we did to make it more soulful was appreciative evaluations. You know, company evaluations, I, I call it the um, relentless pursuit of imperfection. Yes. <laughs> Yes, yes. That's true. Why are we always looking for the minus sign? Uh, so I was always on inquiry and I was always, you know, behind the bush, so to speak, along this corridor in a doorway, observing what people did best. And each person had a flair for something that the other person did not. So when evaluation time came, I would, and I'm a writer, so I would write pages and pages for each person, <laughs> highlighting the things that I noticed. You know, some had a way with parents, especially hostile parents. They just had a way of making everything okay. Um, there were just so many different uh, qualities about them and they were all different. Every person brought something very, very special to the role and sometimes and reading their evaluations in my office, occasionally you would see a tear and you would you'd have a silence and someone say, you noticed? This is the first time anybody has ever told me that I have these strengths or noticed that I have these strengths. And it meant a great deal to them. And it created a great bond between us and a great loyalty. Um, there was a closeness and a, a feeling that we were all on a one team. Now, when we do the opposite, when we pick out people's imperfections and write that down or throw, you know, throw that across the table during an evaluation, I think that people leave uh, downhearted and depressed, uh, low energy. 
you might find gossiping after that or people crying on each other's shoulders. What does that do for anyone? You know, certainly if there's a serious problem and we had some, you know, that's a whole different matter. That's a sit down situation where you, you know, do lay, lay out something that might be ultra serious. But, uh, but generally the annual eval should, I think, uh, contain uh, a lot of what energizes people, what makes them want to come to work the next day and do even better and do, do even more. And it's very, very simple. I'll take it even one step further. There are companies that a manager will write a evaluation and they are judged on the numbers of creative ways to tell people that they're not doing good enough in their jobs rather than to praise them and talk to them about that. I've, I've been subject to that. Mitch, have you ever been subject to a, a review where they tried to come out and come up with, you're doing a fine job. Obviously you're a good student. You must've been a good employee as well. And then they find a way to uh, bring out the thing that you did maybe three Wednesdays ago at two thirty in the afternoon that they're now saying, you know, you really shouldn't do that. So, you know what I mean? Oh no, hundred percent. Um, and that's, I mean, I've had that in so many different positions and, and the big thing too, with a, a lot of this too, that, I, that, that I wanted to make mention is that, um, everybody too, communication is so different for different people. Um, I mean, I used to manage a bunch of retail um, cell phone locations. I was a manager and, um, I, I know my biggest struggle when I first started in management was I used to communicate and do these evaluations. And I used to do, you know, somewhat of an evaluation daily before somebody would start their day to let them, you know, to go over their where their month performance was and try to always keep their that micro awareness. And in the beginning, I used to um, communicate to all of the employees the way that I like to be communicated to. And I learned that that doesn't work. And, you know, you have these different categories. Um, you know, I was, you know, basically put into to numbers perspective. I'm like, why am I only getting about 25% of my staff to be receptive to these coachings versus the other I, I'm not making any progress with. And, you know, and that was me being, a, you know, a manager for the first time and kind of learning. And that's where I was able to kind of go one step further. I sought out some additional help and realized um, I ended up having the employees take a basically a um, like a personality style te test of coaching. And it was able to kind of open my eyes a little bit. And, and I realized that my staff was in different categories of of how they like to receive communication. And in order for me to be an effective manager and actually see progression in the staff, I needed to learn these tools very quickly and I needed to understand that. And once I was able to grasp that and realize, okay, you know, Sally likes to, you know, she, this is the kind of coaching that that's really going to be effective for her. John, this, you know, and Steven, this, and, and being able to switch those gears and it, it made, I mean, it, it took my, my success as a manager and really escalated it quite quickly and and seeing that results it was also it was that moment where i was i was i was blown away and it, and it made a lot of sense to me um my you know based on how i like to receive communication i'm very directive somebody can tell me straight up you didn't do good at this you need to fix it and i was like okay done and you have that 
I will, I'm going, I'm going to do it. And then, you know, I talked to somebody else, one of my staff and I said, look, these aren't, these numbers aren't where they need to be. You need to fix this today, you know, whatever, what it may be. And this person just, you know, immediately they're just, they're defeated. There's, there's no motivation to make any change. They don't feel that there's any care. There's any respect. There's a lot of things I'm sure that they were feeling. And I, you know, and I had to kind of take everyone back and, and kind of apologize a little bit and say, Hey, I'm learning. And I realized that maybe we should be, you know, I should be a little bit better about how I communicate. Oh, am I still here? <laughs> yeah, you're, you're still here. I can, we can hear you. And you're, it's a nice picture of you, by the way. Oh, well, you know, Joanne, in talking about evaluations in the corporate setting or in schools or wherever, I wanted to uh, compliment you. Oh, he's back. Go ahead and finish your thought, Mitch. Oh, I was talking a lot anyway, but, (laughs) but anyway, just to tie it in is like, I understand you, you have these big corporate companies. They put a lot of pressure on, on management, whether it's director, manager, and down the line. And I think that we forget um, about people's lives and understanding what's going on outside of work, what's happening there. And just, it's, yeah, it's, it's very, it's very articulate and you have to be careful. And I, you know, and you have to create a safe place at work and people aren't going to work very hard for you when they don't feel that you're there for them and that you actually care about, you know, what they're doing and the work that they're doing for you. And if you're, if they constantly feel defeated, why eventually they're going to get burnt out. Eventually they're going to quit there and you're not going to do good at your job. It's really just, it causes a big snowball effect of just disappointment for everybody. And I don't know, it was a great learning experience for myself. And I took that in a, in a job atmosphere and I applied it to so many other things in life too. Um, You know, one of the, one of these um, quotes that always stuck with me is seek first to understand and then be understood. And I think that was, that was huge for me because, you know, you can't just sit there and tell everybody what they did wrong all the time. You know, you need to be able to, I used to call it the sandwich. So, you know, you obviously, you have to, you have to, you have to make mention and, and it's still, there's things, you know, when it comes to performance that you need to speak about, but you're starting it off with some positive, you know, what'd you do for the weekend? You know, how are you, how's your day? You know, this is what we were going to talk about. And these are some of the things you need to work on, whatever it may be. And then you end it with a positive. So, you know, you still were able to make mention of some of the things that you needed to speak to him about, but it started positive and it were ending on a positive note too. And it, it just, it was a big, a big difference for myself, at least on my coaching level and skills. And it, it, it definitely promoted um, progression in, in my job and it helped everybody and, made a good environment people liked coming to work <laughs> so it was how good how rare how rare well, what do you know right and by, by the way we're talking with joanne time trainer and she's written the book soulful work 2.0 powered by interpersonal potential and first of all i gotta have to compliment you because when you were doing reviews of your staff it's really easy to do a, a review from afar but you went the extra mile and you actually delved into each person and did some research without them knowing it and about what they were doing well and, and things like that that you could bring out in them. And just like what Mitch is saying, that you can, and then you can 
you have a staff that truly cares for you because you really care for them. Was that your experience? Absolutely. It was a two-way street and it wasn't perfect, but by and large, you know, I, I would say 90% uh, was a, 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 a experience of, of loyalty and facilitating each other. You know, my success was dependent on their success. Their success was dependent on my success. And, you know, part of that su success story was the parents, because any environment that's going on inside of the building is felt. I had a wonderful, wonderful secretary whose strength was uh, creating a feeling of warmth and welcome in the office. So she's the one that greeted people and she made an enormous difference by bringing that to the skill to her job. And um, so parents were often there, they hung out there, they volunteered there, they, the grandparents were there, you know, there was a boatload of um, people from the community. We even had up to, at one point, I think, six different corporate partnerships where people on the bench and consulting companies, for example, would come in and help with reading or help students tutor, help tutor students or uh, uh, be there on um, uh, career day, that kind of thing. So there were constant, constant uh, flow of adults from the community in and out, which was really a positive thing. But they then were also part of that culture. And um, we really had a good thing going. So for me, it was a soulful experience. The days were long, six days a week. I went into the dark. I came home in the dark <laughs> many, many days. But um, I looked back. I looked in the mirror after I had retired after 30 years of service in Ohio Public Administration and said, did you spend your life wisely? And I said, yes, yes. But I'm not finished. This is only the beginning because how can one... Uh, not take that precious uh, information and experience and not share it. Uh, Mitch just, you know, talked about the one thing he did that was, you know, so giving to his staff that he personalized the way that he communicated. W what is soulful work? It's not a one bullet fixes all. It's, it's this skill and the next one and the next one that imbues the workplace with a personal touch with love, with compassion, with realizing we're dealing with humans here who are not perfect. Oh, some people think they are. They'll always say humans are delightfully full of flaws because if you want to, if you want perfection, you've got to take AI, and I'm not sure you always want to. <laughs> that, that's that's also true. It is um, <laughs> as Mitch was saying. There's so many diverse personalities and in the workplace and, and, and things. Now, how long have you been retired? Uh, I have finished 30 years of, well, I had six years in the community and 30 years of service in the public school, in Ohio public administration. So uh, it was 2002, I've been doing this since then. I wrote the first version of this book about 10 years ago, 392 pages. And it oh, was wow. dense. It was dense. <laughs> and it, I did not publish it. I was not able to publish it at the time. And it just sat there. And, um, you know, as life goes on, uh, I had my website going for sure. And it was a growing thing. We had conversation going. And eventually, um, I was um, I made contact with Dr. Stephen G. Post, who is um, professor at Stony Brook University. 
Uh, it's the Renaissance Center for Compassion and Medicine. And there they uh, teach uh, up and coming physicians how to practice with love and compassion. So it's a very special program. And Stephen Post is also the president of uh, the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love. It was oh. funded by Sir John Templeton of the Templeton Funds. And it's uh, there to explore the great questions. Why are we here? What is the purpose of life? You know, how do we add love and compassion into the world and make sense of all of this? And so I serve on the board of directors of that institute. And through that institute and meeting the wonderful people who are a part of it, I was able to uh, bring my uh, my platform forward, so to speak, and uh, was able to rewrite the book at Stephen's beckoning, really, <laughs> who I, I salute for um, put, you know giving me that little push that I needed to uh, bring this forward. And I'm, I'm happy that, it, you know, about 260, 270 pages of my book, not sure how many, but 262. You know, all of those words, even those few words point to so many more realities and so much more underlying knowledge and wisdom. You exactly. Know, I, I call it genre of, of wisdom lit for the workplace because we need more wisdom. We don't need more information. We have all that training and all that information, but it's not making us happier. Well, Joanne, I got to ask you because you made the statement, so I have to follow up with it. Why are we really here? Uh, we're here to uh, put our, our minds and hearts in service to each other. You know, the mind inform, should inform the heart. We shouldn't be dwelling. We should be living in our minds. When we live in our minds, we're hypercognitive and we're, you know, this is why we have the clash of politics and opinions. If, you, if we live in our heads, we're bound to disagree because as many people walking the earth, we have a different thought every day. Sometimes our opinions change day to day. But if we drop down to our heart space where we actually know things, we're not in conflict. It's a place of peace, it's a place where we can understand that people uh, who may be hostile or acting out or have lost their way are human beings just like us who may have not had the best upbringing, who may have had some, came up on some hard times, maybe made a wrong turn. We're all struggling. No one's better than the next. You know, here we are. But we, you know, right now are two world wars going on, two wars going on in two different parts of the world. And, you know, think about why, why it's, it's our heady self that brings us into a place of conflict. And we really, you know, as we awaken we come to a place of a change of mind and then maybe a, a change of heart, really. There's a word in the Greeks had metanoia, and it, it's a huge word. The word metanoia means a dramatic, transformative change of heart. Not just changing, not just changing our minds, but a change of heart that we look at each other differently. Now, what brings that about? Usually, sadly, pain and suffering. And I would hate to think that we, we need to suffer more or endure more pain to awaken and change our, our hearts. But I think um, as we look around, you know, you, you read the, the newspapers every day and you're on, the po on podcasts of all kinds talking about 
how we're uh, you know advancing integration <laughs> as a society. Things are just not working out so well. And if we keep thinking into it, I think we'll be more and more in conflict. Whereas if we take a moment to, you know, take a deep breath and say, wait a minute, you know, are we just our heads? Because AI is going to show us what it means to be human. And I'm sure of it because AI can do the work of our hands. AI can do the work of our heads. So what's left for us to do the work of our hearts and souls? Do you know who, uh, um, uh, and Mitch, I'll bring you in here. Do you know who Gene Roddenberry is, was? I don't know. Um, Joanne, I'm going to ask you, do you know who Gene Roddenberry was? Roddenberry, no. He was a visionary, and he uh, wrote a screenplay in 66 that became a television show called Star Trek. Okay. And he is... Um, um, considered um science fiction but if you look at these communicators they're a flip phone that we have had and now we're using computers in stuff he his vision was by the year 20 by the 23rd century uh technology will be to the point where we don't have to work anymore we will have machines that are doing uh, replicators to feed us and and things to take care of us and and to clean our houses and to do all this so that gives us an inordinate amount of time to do something. And yes. it's our job at that point in his world. And I hope that we actually get there before we, you know, I don't know, blow ourselves up. But I, but in his world, um, you, got, you had the opportunity to be anything that you wanted to be. Whether it's you wanted to go off into space or you wanted to uh, be a farmer or you, anything that was in your passion. You could follow your passion. And that, I think, in, plays a lot to what you talk about in your book, is, uh, is living, living the life that you truly wish to live. Because you, you said it earlier, when you get to the point where it's your last day on Earth, you want to be able to look back and say, you know, dang it, I did a pretty good job. You know what I mean? What do you think? Hasten the day when AI could take away the dog work that we've all had to do you know all of these jobs that are just mindless brainless you know just faceless functionary stocking shelves and moving boxes and uh you know doing all the things that we need done when when that is taken away i think there's a great awakening possibility and opportunity right there okay now we're free from that elon musk talks a lot about that <laughs> we're free so what about humanizing the world? Because all of the science and technology is, is fine. It's doing a great deal of good for us, but we've lost our humanity. We're all, you know, the cash cow or the, the number, you know, we're, we're, we're lost. So if we could use our time then to do what we love, find our co true callings, what is it that, you know, what is that fascination that each one of us have that if we retired or had all the money in the world, we'd be doing that. It's the thing you're doing when you look up at the clock and say, it's already noon. What were you doing just before that? It's always a clue to what that wonderful calling might be. But when we're, when we're able to do that, maybe we can look at all of the human situations on planet Earth that need attention. And I'm sure that all the vocational bases are covered. There is someone who is extremely talented and interested in solving all of the human problems 
and uh, when AI takes the boatload of hard, hard, you know, the donkey work away from us, we may have uh, a whole new scenario to to write about, talk about, and develop. I really, I really hope that that's true because, you know, I, I for one, I don't know about, I well, I, actually, I know Mitch is, he gets to go all over the place and do a bunch of different stuff, and he really enjoys. I think I, I could be wrong. I haven't specifically asked him, but I think he enjoys getting up every morning and going and doing stuff and meeting cool people and and doing what he does. I get to do the same thing and you get to do the same thing. How in your book do you teach people and do you guide them to be able to do that and to set themselves up for that? Setting them up for their true callings? Yes. So that could begin very early in life. And I have a chapter on that, a couple, actually two or three chapters on that. even when we're very young, uh, and I saw this as a a school principal, if you watch a child closely and you watch that child with that second set of lenses that I'm trying to give people, you notice that a certain child will have music in their DNA. They're always, you know, they're singing, they're dancing, they're moving around, they're acrobats, whatever. Another one is, you know, a born politician. They have a certain way of communicating. They were wearing that velvet glove and shaking hands and reaching out and have that altruism about them. Others are, are nurturers, you know, very quiet. And, you know, they're, they're there to take care of other people. You, you, you see this in them. And, it, you know, as parents and teachers and as an educational community, if we could look at young people and uh, see what's, Use that appreciative inquiry technique. What's so special about you? You know, we have a lot of bullying in schools these days, and there's a lot said about that. What displaces bullying? Appreciative affirming. If even kids can can see what's special about the kid next to them, they know in their own team and their own class who can do what, who's best at what, who's the class clown who can make everybody laugh on a rainy day, and and you know who's good at what. So when we can displace what's wrong with you with the what's right with you mentality, already we have something positive going and more self-esteem or, you know, uh, we bring a more positive human uh, through the teen years and forward. Uh, So that's one thing. And then, you know, employers can do that too. You know, they have all kinds of tools to assess personal vocational identity, endless tools. Um, but I think the individual also, you know, that each person has to sit down in a quiet place, not one time, but uh, many, many times and try to get as many experiences as we can when we're young. What do you like? What don't you like? Each job that you hate, it tells you something, you know, Einstein said he 99 mistakes, but one, one discovery Every time he failed, he learned something more. So too with our callings, when we try different jobs, we say, I love something about that job. I can't put my finger on it, but there was something about that job I really liked versus there was nothing about that job. I never want to go down that road again. <laughs> so we learn you know, by trial and error, but it's important to do that early on. So having a lot of different jobs or volunteering in a lot of different places will help us. And I think there's a calling for every stage of life. I am, you know, six years in a convent, 30 years in 
uh, school administration. And since 2002, soulful work. And I'm up for, I, I am, I'm still, you know, in search of the next calling. I think there are so many chapters of life. And if we can engage ourselves actively in each chapter, we don't have to do the same thing our whole life long. We are able to switch gears. And I think even especially as we, you know, cross over the age of 50, it's important to keep active, uh, pursue callings. What was that dream? You, did you always want to paint? Did, you know, and even to, to volunteer, always to be a little bit um, oriented to others and their needs, even if it's one half day a week, um, half day a month, it's at least something that you look forward to meeting someone else's need. Because as soon as we start to focus on ourselves, we have problems. We can discover a lot of problems if we focus on ourselves. Uh, as soon as we start focusing on others, though, we forget. My mother had four children. She had two sets of twins. And she <laughs> said in her 80s, she said, the happiest days of my life were when I was working with my children, helping my children, feeding my children, doing the housework, whatever it took to make the family go. Was, was, your father, was your father with her the entire time? Yes, he was. Because I was just thinking about him. It was like, what? You're doing this again? Twins again? <laughs> well, my both of my parents and my whole family have very high work ethics. They would have to if you had two sets of twins. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> I, I, had, I had two kids. They were three years apart, and they wore me out. So I can't imagine having four and two and two. Um, but uh, I, I agree with you. And it's, uh, you know, I, by the way, Mitch, when you turned 50, did you notice that there was a, ch no, wait a minute, you're not 50 yet, are you? No, not quite. <laughs> but <laughs> but there, there is a point in time when you need to reflect upon who you really are and really work to, to become that rather than what society tells you to do. Um, and, you know, there, we all have examples of that. My father was a perfect example of, uh, he worked for Nordstrom for 30 years. He was an executive for them, and uh, but that wasn't what he wanted to do. He wanted to be a golf pro and have a pro shop on a country club golf course, which I think he would have loved, but he never did it. And I vowed that I would never do that. And so that's why I do this, so I can talk to people like Joanne Treiner and, and, and bring to everybody her work, Soulful Work 2.0, and uh, I invite invite you to get the book. It's just brand new out and, and came out in August. And pretty soon she's going to have her website back. But you can go to LinkedIn and you can find her there. And um, right, yes, LinkedIn. Absolutely. And absolutely. And before before we go, Mitch, do you have any other questions that you'd like to ask uh, Joanne? Joanne. Uh. I don't know. I, I feel like there's so many that I could ask, but I just wanted to say that it's really nice to, um, it was really great talking. It was nice to hear, um, you know, just, just your passion, you know, what, what everything's about this book, you know, looking at it on here, just even the little synopsis on Amazon um, really speaks to myself um, and just what I what I've seen in the last, you know, 15, 20 years working for so many different jobs and the importance of understanding around everything that you're doing. I think, I think sometimes people don't take that 
step back and really think about it. You know, we get in this go, 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 go mentality all the time. And it's just, it's not always the effective way Like you I'd see on here mentioned, you know, global workplace, 2022, you know, employees who are not engaged and who are actively disengaged, they cost the world $7.8 trillion in lost productivity. And, and that's just, a, that's a mind blowing number that can, that actually has the ability to, to be changed and not be that way. If we just maybe took a step back and maybe, um, thought yes. about the people that we had with, you know, working for us or whether it's in schooling or anything like that. I think uh, work and life and balance is so key and we forget that. And I, I'm really excited. I definitely want to look and get your book and, uh, and read about it because it's it's very something that I'm very interested in. And um, I love what you do, Joanne. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much. And thank you for your words of wisdom. Seek first to understand. Thank you. Beautiful. Yes, indeed. Well, that was beautiful, Miss. Thank you. And Joanne, we need to go. But before we go, I want you to take a moment to tell our audience anything that you would like them to know. Oh, so much wisdom comes with life. And, you know, we are lifelong learners. And I'm very proud to have been able to learn so very much. And my heart's desire is just to share that wisdom for the workplace and grow it. We can't get there in, you know, one day or one month or even in a year, but we pass on this wisdom and it grows by generation. So anything we can do, I'm now working with a group of entrepreneurs, conscious entrepreneurship is a theme. And I'm working with a small group of conscious entrepreneurs who love the idea of soulful work and want to turn it into practice. So that's not just theory. It's not just pie in the sky talk, but it's actually the concrete deliverance of how we work day to day with each other and for each other. We don't work for the money, for the overlords, for the boss. We work, we should be rightly working for each other, to serve each other and to make the world a human place where we flourish from within. You know, when, when this is all going to change, Joanne, is is when the executives of major companies look at it and go, you know, that makes a whole lot of sense. And then they put it into practice and their productivity goes up, their turnover goes down, people are smiling more at work, everybody has a great idea and they bring them to the great idea and stuff and things change. And that's the only way things change because then they'll find that doing it a new way adds profitability to the business. And entrepreneurs are not the bad guys. You know, I think they bend over backwards and many of them do as much as they can do. I mean, if you think about Google as, as an employer and you think of all the benefits that employers are given, they're about the outer person benefits generally. The coffee shop, the, you know, the lunch, lunch uh, locations, uh, the laundromat and all the accoutrements that a person would like who, who works. But those are all external um ways of adding quality of life to the workplace. But I write about the inside out angle. What, right. what can we do as far as even starting with personal vocational identity? Are you even in the right job so that you can flourish in it? 
Because if you're just doing it for the money, if you're just doing it for the notoriety or uh, because friends of yours happen to take the same major in college, then you're in trouble because you won't stay with it. And you'll you'll in the end, you know, drop out and things will not work out well. So even just that one thing among many. So the, the book is just full of um, avenues to think about as we make as we try very hard to make the transition. Again, the name of the book is Soulful Work 2.0. And Joanne Triner has been our guest. And I want to thank you so much for being here. You're going to need to come back and we're going to have to flush out this. I'm interested in the 7.8 trillion number because I'll take some of that and I can make it happen that it, that our productivity goes up and the cost of doing business goes down and because people are happier. And that's that's just good management. So, but thank you for being here. And, thank you so much. and Mitch, it's always great to have you. And your 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 sure. internet your internet held out near the end, which was great. <laughs> it did. It finally figured it out. I don't know what's going on. So sorry about that again. But oh, don't no, not a problem at all. And jo- Joanne, if you wait right there, I'll be right back. Hey, thanks for enjoying this episode all the way to the end. Please give us a like and subscribe to this channel. This has been a production of PositiveTalkRadio.net. Please visit our website, oddly named PositiveTalkRadio.net, for more details about us and our mission, which is to provide great positive programming designed to inspire us all. I'm Kevin McDonald, and I'm proud of these shows, and I truly hope that you'll like them and share them with friends and family. So on behalf of our entire team, remember... Be kind to one another because 